Recording in progress. Good evening. I'd like to call to order the Shoreline City Council regular meeting for Monday, January 29th, 2024. Will you please join me in the flag salute? I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America and to the republic for which it stands, one nation under God, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all. Thank you. Will the clerk please call the roll? Mayor Roberts? Here. Deputy Mayor Mark? Present. Councilmember Ramsdale? Present. Councilmember Scully? Present. Councilmember Adamasu? Present. Councilmember Povey? Here. Councilmember Robertson? Here. Thank you. Tonight I have the pleasure of tonight I have the pleasure of proclaiming tomorrow. Tuesday, January 30th, at, as Edwin T. Pratt Day of Remembrance in the City of Shoreline. To honor this Day of Remembrance, the City Hall flag will be flown at half-staff. Also, the Shoreline Police, in partnership with the Shoreline Community College, will host an event to remember the life of Edwin Pratt from 5 o'clock to, to 7 o'clock p.m. at Shoreline Community College. Accepting the proclamation tonight, on behalf of the Pratt family is Sarah Haycox. You please join me at the podium. Whereas Edwin Pratt was a prominent local civil rights leader, founding member of the Central Area Civil Rights Committee, and former executive director of the Seattle Urban League. And whereas Edwin Pratt championed school desegregation, fair housing policies and practices, and ending discrimination in employment for black Americans and others. And Whereas Edwin and Betty Pratt were among the first African-Americans residents to live in the Shoreline community when they purchased a house here in 1959. And whereas Edwin Pratt was a husband, father, and neighbor, and was active locally in his church here in Shoreline. And whereas Edwin Pratt was 38 years old when he was murdered at his Shoreline home over 50 years ago on January 26th, 1969, and whereas January 30th, 1969 was declared a public day of mourning for Edwin Pratt, and all flags were ordered to be flown at half-staff. Now therefore I, Christopher Roberts, Mayor of the City of Shoreline, on behalf of the Shoreline City Council, do hereby proclaim January 30th, 2024 as Edwin T. Pratt Day of Remembrance in the city of Shoreline and ask all residents to work together to participate in building a diverse and inclusive community with opportunities for all as Edwin Pratt had envisioned. And now I'd like to call, invite up to the podium Sarah who was instrumental as uh, and leading the effort to name the Edwin Pratt Early Learning Center after him and his family. And so, Sarah, would you like to say a few words? 
Thank you, Mayor Roberts. Miriam Pratt is so sorry not to be here this evening. She is recovering from some health issues and asked if I would read the following remarks for her. Good evening, everyone. Thank you to the city of Shoreline for honoring my father, Edwin T. Pratt. The original proclamation from 1969 called for a day of mourning. Tomorrow, over 50 years later, we will come together for an evening of, re of remembrance and a celebration of my father's life. My father didn't want anyone to suffer, especially those in marginalized communities. If he was right here in 2024, he would still be fighting for civil rights, though not just for black people. He would be speaking out against all of the injustices experienced by oppressed minorities, unhoused impoverished people, members of the LGBTQ community, and immigrants. My father was a champion for change, and he would have been appreciative of all the progress that Shoreline has made. My father knew that for discrimination to end, people needed to see each other as neighbors and friends, and that remains true to this day. Thank you again for joining me and remembering my father, Edwin T. Pratt, and please consider attending the free Pratt Remembrance event tomorrow from 5 to 7 p.m. at Shoreline Community College. Thank you. Tomorrow should be a really good event. The next item is approval of the agenda. If there are no objections or comments, the agenda is adopted by unanimous consent. Next on the agenda is the report of the city manager, Mr. Ellington. Thank you. Good evening, council. I have a couple of final reminders for opportunities that are closing this week. The first is our surface water managed master plan update survey which closes on Wednesday. We want to make sure that our community's voice is heard as we plan our surface water projects for the next six years. Help us prioritize and accomplish our continuing goals of cleaner water, less flooding, and readiness for climate change. Visit engage.shorelinewa.gov forward slash surface water to learn more and to take the survey. Also closing on Wednesday is our 2024 environmental mini grant application period. We're offering grants up to $5,000 for projects that have a positive impact on our environment and, and community. Learn more and submit your ideas at shorelinewa.gov forward slash environmental mini grant. Join your neighbors and the Green Shoreline Partnership on Wednesday to help expand and protect Hamlin Park's beautiful urban forests. Work to remove invasive species improve soil health and plant native trees and shrubs. Dress for the weather. Most tools will be provided, but feel free to bring your own. And to learn more and register, visit shoreline.greencitypartnership.org. And finally, our next public meeting on the calendar is the Planning Commission on Thursday, February 1st at 7 p.m. Visit the city's calendar at shorelinewa.gov forward slash calendar for meeting agendas and information on how to participate in all of our public meetings. And that concludes the city manager's report. Thank you, Mr. Ellington. This brings us to council reports. Are there any council reports this evening? Councilmember Branso. Uh, thank you, Mayor. Uh, last Wednesday, I attended uh, two board meetings, one in the morning, one in the evening. 
Um, the first one was the, I attended the board, board meeting with the North Urban Human Services Alliance. Uh, the, uh, it was an excellent meeting with several human services providers were there, including um, representatives from the Regional Crisis Response Agency, um, the uh, connection, uh, Connections Health Solutions that provided an update on the Kirkland Crisis Care Center and uh, members from uh, King County uh, Health, including uh, Christopher Schild with the King County, he's a King County Policy ma uh, Manager. And uh, it became really clear during the meeting how much of our North uh, King County um, uh, is leading um, kind of the, the uh, effort to provide mental health crisis uh, centers uh, throughout the county, and uh, what, we, what we're doing with, Shore, with Shoreline, Lake Forest Park, and Bothell, and I know I'm forgetting a few, but um, uh, that we are really kind of uh, paving the way and creating a model for the, for the rest of uh, the county. Um, uh, and then during the evening, I, I, I attended the principal assemblies board with uh, the Regional Crisis Response Agency, and uh, that that is also showing incredible success. The the, uh, they're fully staffed now for the first time. And um, in the last um, uh, quarter, uh, just from October to the end of December, um, 622 individuals were encountered um, uh, and, uh, and served, and then there are 106 of them were right here directly in Shoreline. Um, and there's, the success is really so evident that actually Redmond is rock, knocking down the door, asking to be part of um, the, the uh, program. So we had, a, we had a really excellent kind of conversation about like, what, what that will look like if, uh, if Redmond should be allowed in or not. But it, the final conclusion was like, yeah, we need to get our house in order. We need to get some data in place to see how, how well um, the program's working. So thank you very much. Thank you, Councilmember Ramsdale. Any other council reports? So on Friday, uh, Councilmember Adamasu and Councilmember Robertson attended an event at the Shoreline Fire Department with Chief Park and uh, a whole lot of new uh, paramedics uh, at the fire department talking about uh, the governor's plans to re uh, address the fentanyl and opioid crises and the importance of the work of first responders. So it was very good to have the governor here in the city and it was good to sort of continue to build great relationships with the Shoreline Fire Department. Next on the agenda is public comment. This is the portion of the meeting where members of the public may address the City Council on agenda items or any other matters pertaining to city business for three minutes or less, depending on the number of people wishing to speak. Please note there's also a public hearing this evening. Speakers signed up for the public hearing will be called on during that portion of the meeting. The total, the total public comment period for this period will be no more than 30 minutes. If more than 10 people are signed up to speak, each speaker will be allocated two minutes. Ms. Semelchuk-Smith, how many individuals have signed up to speak? Three. Three? Okay. Uh, the, clerk, the clerk will call in-person speakers first and then followed by remote speakers. When it's your turn, please state your name, your city of residence, and any organization that you represent. Lathan Wayne. Good evening, friends. Um, I'm here to speak on uh, the access of Buffs Barn. Uh, I saw on uh, TV the, the attendance, and uh, I agree with them uh, that 
that that uh, facility should not be moved. And and uh, yeah, that's all that I have to say. Thank you. Thank you. Fran Malonis. Welcome. Thank you. I came to speak about the um, building that's with going. Your, excuse me. Can you start here with your name and city of residence? My name is Fran Lillinus. My address? They're just your city. That's fine. My what? Your, the city of residence, and you can restart the timer. City of Shoreline. Thank you. And okay. you can restart the timer. Can I speak? Yes. Okay. I have six points that I'd like to bring to your attention concerning the uh, retirement home that's going in on 8th Northwest and Richmond Beach Road. And I'm very much concerned about the impact that's going to have because they are going to be taking away our post office, a nail salon, and a restaurant. And uh, to go to the post office from Richmond Beach, it takes five, six lights to get up to this one. And this one here on, um, right up here across from Fred Meyer, you wait in line anyway, so what are you going to do with the post office when you shut down one that's down in Richmond Beach? Anyway, notices about this uh, building that was going to go in for a retirement community and taking out three businesses, including the post office, was sent out December 13th to 500, around 500 feet. 500 feet encompasses mostly businesses in that community and very few residents, both on Richmond Beach Road, on both sides of Richmond Beach Road. So I don't know how many residents really got your notice and how many responses you got back. I've heard of somewhere around 50. Um, I'm concerned that this um, huge um, crane on, oh, that there are going to be so many apartments that are built between 178th and 190th on Aurora. It comes to about 2,042 2, apartments, new apartment units that are going in. Where are the people going to shop? Are we going to have a line all the way around Fred Meyer to go shopping? How many businesses have you given permits for to develop on along Aurora, as well as the number of apartments that you're going to be housing over 2,000, no, 2,042 new apartment units, approximately? And um, let's see. Anyway, um, I'm really concerned about the um, huge crane also that's on Linden, which is not included in the over 2,000 units that are being currently built, but the additional one on Linden and about 172nd or 76th. It's an enormous crane. So if you're on the city council, how are you planning for your residents to do shopping to go anywhere when you're influxing us with over 2,000 more apartments, which probably will amount to about 4,000 more people once the one Linden is being made. And that's what concerns me. How many business licenses, or how many business zonings do you have for businesses to come in to service all of these over 2,000, 3,000 people that will be moving into this neighborhood? Thank you. I'd like to see your plans. Thank you. Thank you. Derek Blackwell is next. 
Welcome. Mr. Blackwell, you're muted. I'm sorry, can you hear me now? Yes, we can. Uh, thank you. Uh, this is Derek Blackwell. I live in Shoreline near the Madeira Project. Here is the second part of the email sent to you by my neighbor, Courtney Ewing, along with many others back in September. Again, she can't join us Mondays and gave me an enthusiastic thumbs up to read this. Uh, the applicant states that their project conforms to the intent and purpose of the code. If you look at the Shoreline website under codes, it states, these ordinances, these ordinances set standards to maintain safety and protect quality of life in Shoreline. The codes are not in place to allow developers to overdevelop a portion of land and then request the city for an exemption to the rules. I am an engineer. I know the purpose of rules and regulations. This request is self-seeking in terms of maximizing the number of units on the plot of land so the developer can maximize their profits. The applicant's request does not in any way, shape, or form improve the neighborhood or city of Shoreline. Access to fire and emergency services should never be an afterthought in a design. The applicant claims the deviation is based upon sound engineering judgment. I disagree. Sound engineering judgment conforms to the rules and code unless there is a real need to deviate. The applicant did not oversize their building. If the applicant did not oversize their building, there would be no need to request two deviations for two driveways. The applicant knew the requirement and the lay of the land when they purchased the plot. The applicant knew that they would not have an east access to and from the property when they made the purchase. It is on the developer to design a building that meets the code based on the amount of land and the available access along its perimeters. The applicant has responded that spacing the driveways further apart will improve the overall safety of this new addition to the neighborhood. The intent of the code is to allow safe emergency access along all portions of the development. The intent of the code is not to maximize profit, giant building taking up most of the land, and leave safety as an afterthought, fire access. The applicant states that the project is consolidating three existing driveways into two driveways, which will reduce the number of conflict points between vehicles, pedestrians, and bicyclists. This is quite an exaggeration. The number of conflict points may be reduced by one, However, this does not discount the fact that the percentage of new residential units will be increased by 5.7, with 70 units recently demolished to the proposed 399 units. Additionally, the applicant does not mention the amount of delivery services that will be supporting these new residents. There does not appear to be any legit concern for safety from the applicant in their request for deviation, just words on paper to get their supersized development approved. I am asking you at the very least to reject the deviation request number two on the grounds of public safety. No one gains anything by saying, I told you so after an accident. Please play your part in addressing public safety by not allowing the applicant's deviation on their driveways and email. Thank you for hearing us and thank you for all you do. Thank you. Is there anyone else in the audience who'd like to address the council? Okay, seeing none, we're going to move to approve the consent calendar, which is item number seven. So the next item is approval of the consent calendar. Deputy Mayor Mark. I move approval of the consent calendar. Second. There is a motion and a second to approve the consent calendar. Will the clerk please call the roll? Councilmember Roberts, I mean, May Mayor Roberts. Both work. <laughs> I'm still a council member. <laughs> I will vote aye. Deputy Mayor Mark. 
Aye. Councilmember Ramsdale. Aye. Councilmember Scully. Aye. Councilmember Adamasu. Aye. Councilmember Povey. Aye. Councilmember Robertson. Aye. The, the motion passes unanimously. The next item on the agenda is action item 8A. It is an action item. Will the clerk please read it into the record? This is a public hearing and discussion of ordinance number 1003, extension of interim regulations to extend application deadlines for multifamily and mixed use projects that are ready to issue and delayed due to the unavailability of construction financing. Thank you. Steve Sassfran, our senior planner, is presenting this item in this evening. The agenda for the public hearing will be a staff presentation, followed by public testimony and then council discussion. Thank you, Mayor and Council. Uh, Steve Safran, Senior Planner with Shoreline. And we are here to discuss proposed ordinance 1003, which is the extension um, of the, um, already the extension of application deadlines for multifamily mixed use projects that are ready to issue and delayed due to lack of construction financing. Uh, staff began hearing from applicants starting in the fall of last year with concerns about the ability to keep um, existing or find new, uh, new financing to construct permit-ready buildings. If the projects are not financed and construction is delayed and these ready-to-issue permits, um, applications become risk uh, for expiring if financing is not procured within the timelines outlined in the Shoreline Development Code. Um, to address this issue, City Council did adopt Ordinance 992, which provided a six-month six interim development regulations to allow for additional extensions of these ready-to-permit um, applications. Um, those interim regulations are set to expire on February 22nd unless uh, Council extends those regulations. Um, so if council approves this extension, um, August 23rd would be the deadline for any other projects entering into the ready to issue stage to apply for a one-time 360-day extension. This is on top of the code, which allows one 180-day extension. Um, council will um, see this back before them on February 12th for, for an action. Thank you very much. Thanks. I now wish to open the public hearing. Public testimony is list limited to three minutes per person testifying. The city clerk will act as timekeeper for each speaker. Ms. Semelchik-Smith, has anyone signed up to speak for this public hearing? No. Oh, thank you. Uh, if anyone would like in the audience who'd like to come and address the council on this item. I see no one heading to the podium. So I will declare the, I will now close the public hearing. And is there any council discussion? Councilmember Ademasu. Hi, Steve. Uh, thank you for your report. Sure. And thank you for answering the questions. Um, so I guess my question is on the financing. Um, I'm just wondering, is the market undergoing a correction possibly? I think there's signs of it looking up, but um, yeah. So, so with the vacancy rates and possible market undergoing correction, there's a potential these permits 
might not even after the extension go be realized yeah in the next six months um, assuming the ordinance is um, extended there's one applicant who's taken advantage of the extension who their financing fell through um, there's uh, a number of larger mixed-use projects in the review stage it's not quite up to the ready to issue but um, maybe out of an abundance of caution if council did extend this they would have that opportunity opportunity to extend their their permit if they did run into some financing um, problems but we haven't really heard anything from those so you know, okay. hopefully they don't uh, their financing doesn't fall through but okay and this extension would specifically be for the for the mixed use and, and larger projects um, it wouldn't be for smaller housing projects anything in that um, multifamily or mixed use okay. uh, permit type right okay thanks for clarifying any further discussion councilman Riscoli. thank you and I appreciate the report I, I you know, I have concerns about sort of the ongoing pace of everything, and I hope that the market does correct itself. But I don't say how we're any better off by not doing this, right? I mean, I, I don't see why we would want to undercut a developer who's hit a, a temporary roadblock. So I'm supportive of this, and I don't see a lot of controversy on it, so I'm hoping we can do it on consent calendar. Thank, thank you. you. Any further? Councilman Popoli. Thank you. And thank you, Councilman Massey, for that. I was looking at where we stand to lose as a city, revenue loss, and in looking at services and resources already dedicated to a permit application, and we extend for six months and then 360 days, one year gone, and they said, oh, nothing. Have we been able to put in uh, either a policy, internal policy, which is going to say, okay, we spent this amount processing the application, so we will have to take this much of the fee you paid and paid this back. So I was just thinking through that. Yeah, these, these projects, when they initially submit their application, they, they have an initial review fee, which is collected. So we don't refund that portion. Those are non-refundable. Yeah. Thank you. So, and then there's also a fee right when they pick it up. So that's, that's where the, more of the problem comes in because that's a large chunk of money that comes in when we give you the permit, but they do pay for um, staff's time at the initial application stage. The, the, thank you. The mm -hmm. latter part, I didn't hear the latter part you, what you said. You said when they pick the application, what happens? So that's when the rest of the bill is due, when they actually pick up the application, um, which is a larger uh, sum of money, typically. Okay. So. Okay, but the first payment is non-refundable. Right. If, they, if the payment doesn't go through, they don't get to pay Right. The yeah, right. Okay. Exactly. I see. And we're looking for that payment. <laughs> Thank you. Any further discussion? Any objection to seeing this on consent on February 12th? No? Okay. All Thank right. you very Thank much. Thank you. This brings us to study item 9A, a study session on law enforcement accountability. Uh, City Manager Ellington is going to introduce the staff report. So last year, the city of Shoreline entered into a contract with the Center for Public Safety Management 
to provide a third party assessment of law enforcement services and accountability in Shoreline, which included both preventative and reactive internal mechanisms of the King County Sheriff's Office. The intent of the study was to ensure public trust and safety and to improve the relationship between the police department and the community they serve. Uh, no action is proposed tonight. This is a presentation only. Um, we have with us tonight the team leader, Jared, I want to pronounce this correctly, um, hopefully is Berg, Bergwin. He'll correct me if I'm wrong. Um, he's here virtually to present the findings of the study. And also in person, we have Chief Kelly Park, who will provide context to some of the findings that were highlighted in the study. Thank you, and welcome. And with that, I'll turn it over to Jared. Well, thank you. I nice to get a thumbs up that everybody can hear me. My audio is good. Yes, your audio is you great. You can't hear me. Okay, thank you. Thank you very much. So uh, uh, thank you, Council. Uh, Mayor, Mr. City Manager, Chief Mark uh, Park, and uh, members of the public. Uh, my name is Jared Berguan. I am a retired police chief. I uh, spent my career um, in Southern California law enforcement. Uh, I now work as a consultant for an organization called the Center for Public Safety Management. Uh, we call them CPSM. And we were contracted by the City of Shoreline to provide this police accountability study. I am going to move to share my screen here. Sorry, it's asking me for a few permissions here. There we go. Okay, is that up and can everybody see that? Yes. Okay, thank you very much. So that's the first uh, slide there. So a little bit about who our team is. Uh, as I said, my name is Jared Baguan. I'm a retired police chief. I was the project lead uh, on this particular project. The other members of the project was a gentleman by the name of Martin Baeza. He's a retired deputy chief from the Los Angeles Police Department. Brought a very unique uh, set of experiences working for LAPD through uh, their consent decree, uh, as well as uh, within a very strong uh, police commission, or a very powerful police commission uh, structure. Second member of our team, or the third member, I should say, is Brian Stamfel, who was a retired captain from the Seattle Police Department, spent a great deal of his career uh, within um, Seattle PD's Internal Affairs Unit, as well as uh, brought familiarity with the systems within Washington State, and also worked for Seattle through their consent decree process, so brought a very unique perspective. Uh, Doug Chels on our team is the Director of Quantitative Analysis. He does uh, any of the background analytical work that we ask. And of course, we have an editor uh, that hopefully puts the report together in a sensible way. A little bit about the way we go about doing our job. Uh, there is, uh, we start with the data analysis. We do extensive interviews with people within the organization. In the case of Shoreline and in the case of most of the work that we do, uh, we do focus groups with, uh, with employee groups. Uh, we review a great deal of documents uh, and we make operational administrative observations while we're actually on site. And we did spend a few days uh, on site there in Shoreline as well as did things uh, remotely in this project. Uh, we normally work for uh, a police department, so to speak, and we will make direct recommendations to that department 
when we complete our assessment report. In this case, because Shoreline was the client and we were assessing uh, the internal systems within King County, specifically the Sheriff's Department, but also the Oversight Board, we did not make recommendations. What we did is include in the report uh, areas that we identified that may warrant additional um, discussion between the city and those particular entities. The scope of work here is ultimately we were brought on board uh, to provide a third party assessment of law enforcement accountability within the Shoreline community and specifically the King County Sheriff's Department to evaluate the internal control mechanisms of the Sheriff's Department, specifically the way that they uh, prevent and investigate potential misconduct on the part of their employees. Uh, and then also to evaluate the role of the Shoreline City Manager and the City Council uh, within the operational control of the King County Sheriff's Department and how that compares against uh, other jurisdictions that contract services. In general, and you'll see this in the, in the summary that we wrote, in general, what we found is the King County Sheriff's Department is a professional organization. Uh, they are aligned with industry standards. We do make some recommendations for some additional discussion or things that were highlighted that might be shortages, but we don't want that to be interpreted as any type of indictment against the organization. We have never seen an organization that is able to do everything perfectly. Uh, unfortunately, this can be a messy business, uh, and, but what we did observe within King County Sheriff's Department is an organization that overall is aware of the modern discussions on policing, the challenges in policing their communities, and they were making decisions for their organization that fit, best within, that fit best within the context of their organization and the challenges that they were independently or individually presented with within their community. Uh, but we will talk about some of the, uh, the, uh, the things that we noticed. Uh, external oversight within uh, King County Sheriff's Department is done through OLEO, the Office of Law Enforcement Accountability. We will discuss OLEO in further detail in this report. Uh, and then we also found that ultimately that role of the city manager and the role of the council, it is generally aligned with what we see in contract city relationships. And in some areas, uh, the oversight or the role that Shoreline plays is more robust, robust than we'll see in a lot of other communities that contract with the sheriff's department. We've talked about the difference between contracting a police department uh, or contracting for law enforcement services versus running your own police department. Uh, what we find is uh, quite often newer communities are going to elect a contract for their law enforcement services. And there's a number of reasons for this. Uh, and a lot of it has to do with the fact that standing up your own police department in today's day and age with the complexity of, of a police department is very, very expensive and very, very complex. And a much easier way of doing that is to contract with an existing larger entity such as the King County Sheriff's Department. Uh, the pros to that particular decision are obvious. Uh, there's less costs involved. Uh, the city will have uh, fewer operational headaches in managing the day-to-day -day business and the HR needs of a police department. And not only that, you're contracting with an agency that has a much larger capacity, but you don't necessarily have to pay for all of that capacity up front. But there are some cons to it as well. Uh, obviously, there's a little bit less operational control. The city might have a little less voice in the policy and operational decisions of a police department than if they have their own police department. Uh, and of course, and this is even the case with Shoreline, uh, ultimately the city has to live with the staffing challenges of the department. And obviously the King County Sheriff's Department is not fully staffed at this point. And there is a proportion of or a percentage of vacancies that exist within the department. And of course, Shoreline shares in that vacancy uh, rate as well, and that not all of the positions that they could potentially contract for 
or the field or were filled at the time of our assessment. But in general, what we did find is that there are areas that are very, very good. Uh, for instance, in Shoreline, you get to choose your own police chief from amongst the ranks of the King County Sheriff's Department. Uh, although there are some sheriff's departments that offer this to their contract cities, that is not necessarily the more norm. In many of the communities that we have assessed, in many areas where sheriff's departments are present, it is the sheriff that will make the decision on who is the commander of any individual city or contract city or contract uh, that the sheriff has. So we see that as a positive. Uh, we also see that the city of Shoreline really does have more of a voice within some of the internal workings of the department as well as the policy of the department through a number of mechanisms. Olio themselves has a voice within the policy of the King County Sheriff's Department. And of course, Shoreline is part of the community and therefore has the voice there. But in addition to that, the chief is actually part of the city's executive staff team and the relationship that exists there allows uh, for that type of dialogue to take place on a regular basis. A little bit about the department. Uh, they are professional modern organizations and they have all of the necessary internal systems in place for standards and accountability training supervision, internal investigative capacity, and early intervention program, and the department is currently in the process of rolling out a body camera program. All of which are part of best practices, and we'll touch on each of those in terms of some potential discussion points in the future. Additionally, the King County Sheriff's Department has a well-established mission, vision, values, and goals. They were well-known throughout the organization. On the internal investigations end, this is what happens when somebody actually makes a complaint about misconduct against a member of the King County Sheriff's Department. It's all covered within King County uh, General or King County Sheriff's Office General Orders, uh, Chapter 3.03. Uh, there is a way in which the department can separate lower-level investigations handled at the local level, more critical investigations of a higher nature are investigated by the Internal Affairs Unit out of headquarters. The policy of the department is that they will investigate and accept all complaints. Uh, made in any way, shape, or form against the agency. Uh, and additionally, we think this is important because we don't see this everywhere. Uh, King County Sheriff's Department does track all of its internal complaints and all of its internal actions through a digital software system. Uh, we have actually seen many departments, even in today's day and age, that are still tracking these things on Excel spreadsheets and in a more rudimentary fashion. King County Sheriff's Department is relatively modern in the way that they're tracking that. I want to talk very briefly on the way dispositions are done within police departments because this is part of our uh, discussion point later on as well. And sometimes there's a confusion in uh, the interpretation of dispositions. So when King County accepts a complaint and they investigate the complaint, they will ultimately uh, conclude that report by making any one of a number of dispositions. Uh, first and foremost, they may find that the entire allegation against the deputy is unfounded. Uh, you know, there's no evidence to suggest that the allegations made are in any way, shape, or form supported by the facts and quite simply can show that the allegation never happened. There's also the uh, disposition of exonerated. Uh, this is very normal. This, this is often found in uh, hypothetically a, 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 an allegation of excessive force. Uh, the investigation may show that in fact the deputy did use force, but there was nothing excessive about it. The deputy's actions were within policy and therefore the allegation of misconduct would be exonerated. Uh, there is not sustained. Uh, that's an allegation where it's one person's word against another and uh, the facts really never did come out and we can't make a determination. We are finding that agencies that have implemented a body camera program are having many or much fewer non-sustained complaints 
uh, versus things that are either unfounded, exonerated, or sustained. That's one of the benefits to a body camera program. Uh, there is also the finding of undetermined, and we'll talk about this a little bit more, but undetermined basically means that at the end of the day, the department was not able to complete the investigation. Uh, there is performance-related training where there may have been a failure of some sort, but it wasn't necessarily as a result of misconduct. It was because of a training deficiency on the part of an employee or department policy issue. And then finally, there are sustained complaints. And those are the ones that ultimately say that the allegations of misconduct are sustained and it moves through the disciplinary process in place at King County. The Sheriff's Department also has an early intervention program and we are complementary of this. Uh, EIPs, as they're known, have been around for many, many years. Uh, departments have had the capacity uh, to do EIPs for many, many years, but many departments have not implemented it. Early adventure programs are exactly what they say. It is the ability to see the career path or the actions of a certain employee and eventually or, or ultimately to intervene uh, in that employee's actions before something becomes more serious. When they have looked at the history of police officer misconduct, very seldomly is there an employee that has had an absolutely perfect work history that suddenly is involved in a uh, such a serious incident that uh, it rises to the level of prominence. More often than not, there is a pattern and practice of behavior of things where the deputy has gotten or the employee has gotten worse and worse and worse over time until finally something blows up. EIP programs are specifically designed to potentially prevent that from happening. And what happens is through the uh, the way that the department documents things, uh, they will insert that into their digital uh, software system. And ultimately there's a point score that's, a, that's applied to that. And if a certain number of incidents happen over a certain period of time, that employee's na name might rise up. It allows the department to then go in and take actions to uh, potentially prevent something more serious from happening. Uh, we will talk about some of the shortcomings of the, uh, of the King County system. Uh, that have been done by the King County Auditor's Office. However, we will cite that the fact that it is in place is a positive thing. Uh, there are many agencies that have been unable to implement these types of programs simply because of the trust that exists between employee unions and departments and the fear of how departments might ultimately use that information. So it's a give and take everywhere that we have seen it. The fact that King County has it, we believe is a positive. Finally, uh, shoreline deputies by and large do not have body cameras, or at least they did not have body cameras when we were on site a few months ago. Uh, there was one employee that happened to be part of a specialized unit that had already been issued cameras and that employee had it, but they had not been issued uh, to all the deputies. But as we understand it, there is a plan in place to get that to all deputies. And even possibly by the time that I'm providing this presentation, uh, some of that has already been done. Additionally, the department already has a policy in place that was introduced in 2022, but as that was described to us, although the policy is, is in place, it is a work in progress, and we will discuss that in a few minutes as well. Law enforcement oversight within King County is done through the Office of Law Enforcement uh, Oversight, also referred to as OLEO. Uh, ultimately, it came as a result of a recommendation from a Blue Ribbon Committee uh, in the county. Authority was uh, allocated through County Ordinance 16511 in 2009, and OLEO commenced operations in 2011. Uh, and they have had independent oversight over King County Sheriff's Office operations since that time. It became a charter agency in 2015. 
Olio cites that they have three core function. One is to monitor investigations against King County Sheriff's Department, uh, allegations of misconduct. Number two is to engage in policy discussions. And then number three is to champion community engagement dialogue between the Sheriff's Office and the community. Uh, and I will read this directly from uh, Olio's documents. The Olio mission is dedicated to improving the lives of King County residents through its independent oversight of the Sheriff's Office. We aim to further policing standards that are driven by the community and rooted, rooted in equity through objective reviews, independent investigation, and evidence-based policy recommendations. The vision of Olio is a King County where all residents are safe and where no one has uh, unnecessary contact with the criminal legal system. Uh, in general, I will say this. Uh, we provide in the report a number of different examples in different jurisdictions of independent civilian oversight. Uh, additionally, there is uh, an organization uh, that is referred to as uh, NACOL, N-A-C-O-L-E, that stands for the National Association for Civilian Oversight of Law Enforcement. It's highlighted on page 38 of the report. It lists in there various models of oversight that are found throughout the country. Specifically, the OLEO model falls into the hybrid definition, uh, meaning that it has uh, kind of a hybrid in terms of its public relations as well as, uh, as its oversight of the agency. Although we've never found a perfect system and there are no two systems that are exactly alike, OLEO ultimately falls within the guidelines of NACOL uh, as a best practice in the way to do civilian oversight, or at least one of many. Uh, in addition to the work of OLEO, uh, there is also another group that is attached that's referred to the Community Advisory Committee for Law Enforcement Overview that is engaged in a lot of the uh, public relations between the community and the Sheriff's Office. Olio uh, has their involvement in that as well. So I wanna get in the last few minutes here talking about the things that we highlighted that are areas for further investigation, specifically on advanced training. Uh, King County Sheriff's Department, as we said, modern day organization, what we did find though, is that when it came to supervisors, interviewing supervisors, as well as their internal affairs investigators, who were also supervisors at the sergeant rank, uh, there was cited a lack of advanced training in the area. Most of the training described by those folks were uh, on the job type training, as well as basic level training in those areas. We think the department could benefit by providing a greater level of advanced training. We talk a lot in our regular assessments about succession planning with an organization, preparing employees for not only the job that they do, but the job that they may do in the future. Uh, we believe this is a shortcoming that can be improved there. We also talked about the onboarding process. One of the unique characteristics about a sheriff's department is that people assigned to the shoreline community may come and go at any given time. They may get transferred out to another assignment within the sheriff's department. They might get transferred into the assignment there in shoreline. We talked about the necessity to have a shoreline onboarding process. Uh, in other words, introducing those employees that are coming into shoreline to work there about what is unique with shoreline, what are the expectations of the shoreline community, and what are the expectations of those employees working within the context of the shoreline police department. The employees that they interviewed had been on the job in shoreline for quite some time, and most of them cited that they had not had any type of onboarding process. But I want to be fair here in discussion uh, that we have with Chief Park, that she says that she has very much already implemented that, and that is being done as we speak. So I want to be fair on that issue. But we did highlight that that came from the discussions with some of the employees. We also want to highlight supervisor administrative responsibilities. Uh, we often say in our reports, and we firmly believe that sergeants are among the most important rank in any police organization. 
They are the link between what management wants, what the community wants, what the department policy and expectations are, and what actually happens at the field level. Uh, sergeants are that critical link. Uh, the job of policing is evolving and the role of a sergeant and a supervisor is becoming more complex. There are more administrative responsibilities being uh, placed upon sergeants and body cameras are adding even more. So we're going to see that administrative role get even more intense once body cameras are brought on board uh, within the community of Shoreline. Uh, this is an evolving area of the profession, but we have to find ways to minimize some of that administrative work that is placed on sergeants to make sure that they are in the field, interacting with deputies, interacting with the public, and observing firsthand what is actually happening uh, in the field, so to speak. And in our discussions with many of the supervisors in Shoreline, they did cite that there is a fairly extensive administrative responsibility that is placed on them that limits the amount of time that they can spend in the field. Talk about the enhanced voice in KCSO employees serving the Shoreline community. So King County Sheriff's Office rules and their agreements with the deputies says that eventually a deputy cannot be removed uh, from an assignment without cause. Uh, we believe that there is some room there that if a particular deputy is not a good fit for the Shoreline community, that, that Shoreline should have a greater voice in that. And that may be something that they choose to engage in a discussion with the, with the Sheriff's Department. Uh, the availability of the complaint forms is a rather minimal thing. Uh, the Sheriff's Department cites within their policy that complaints can be made in any way, shape, or form that they choose. Uh, within the Shoreline Police Station, there is a QR code uh, that is in the lobby for somebody to download a complaint form, but there were no actually complaint forms that were there. Uh, we did also find that there is an odd imbalance between the capacity of OLEO to scrutinize the work and the investigations done against the Sheriff's Department versus the number of investigators that are doing this work. So of all of the investigations that come to the Internal Affairs Unit of the King County Sheriff's Department, there are only five sergeants in place to investigate those. Now there's a review process that goes beyond those five sergeants, but there's only five sergeants to ultimately do the work. Their work is scrutinized by 11 full-time people working for OLEO, and OLEO is increasing their capacity to 14 employees in the near future. Additionally, they don't even scrutinize the work of all of the investigations that are done they only scrutinize select investigations. So there's a little bit of an imbalance there that we believe should be addressed in some way, shape or form. Uh, the disposition of undetermined, we talked about that in the internal investigations. This is a lightning rod issue in many agencies right now where uh, employees that have been under investigation have been able to leave employment in one agency and uh, you know, once they are got, they've gotten in trouble, and as a result, an investigation has not been finished, uh, and therefore there's no finding on it, and that employee has been able to move to another law enforcement organization. Uh, that is technically a scenario in which it can happen within King County's system with the use of undetermined. Uh, the Sheriff's Department did tell us that that is used very, very rarely, uh, and that they would try to ensure that that uh, disposition was not used in those cases, but that is a little bit of concern that we think should be watched. Uh, we talked about the early warning system, and I'll just say this. It's a, it is good to have the system in place. There are shortcomings that were highlighted in the King County Auditor's report. Uh, they are outlined a little bit in the report that we provided. Uh, as much as we want to compliment the organization for having it, there's obviously some areas in which it can be uh, corrected. Uh, there are a lot of questions within Washington State, King County Sheriff's Office, and the relationship with o OLEO on the data collection uh, associated with bias-based policing. 
It is outlined in the report. There is a discrepancy between what state law is, uh, as well as what the expectations are. Some of those things need to be overcome. Uh, that is uh, in the report. There's also some things that have to do with the administrative review team. So quite often administrative review teams might evaluate an incident and they will make a determination on whether a deputy's actions were justified. Uh, but as highlighted in the report, highlighted by Olio, and this is present in a lot of organizations around the country, we quite often don't go back far enough and say, uh, were all of the actions of the deputy appropriate before an incident happened? So in other words, a deadly force encounter may incur, may, may happen, the deputy might be completely justified in his or her actions, uh, and therefore the case would be found to be justified. However, there is a necessity to kind of scrutinize the actions of the deputy or the employee leading up to that to ensure uh, that a, an already dangerous situation was not made more dangerous or that the necessity to use deadly force was ultimately created by the actions of the deputy. And it's a difficult gray area of policing that a lot of organizations are struggling with. And then we also highlight some of Olio's limited enforcement activity. Uh, that is part of the give and take uh, area that, that goes with any uh, oversight committee. Uh, and it's certainly present in King County as well. Uh, I will close by saying this. I have seen oversight models of various uh, forms. Uh, we have seen agencies that have been under a consent decree uh, and we've very, uh, very rarely seen any healthy environment where the expectations of a consent decree leveled against an agency were really helping that organization. Uh, and we've also seen the other side of the spectrum with civilian oversight models that really had no role, no authority. Uh, they were really just propped up as, a, as kind of a feel-good thing. Uh, undoubtedly, King County fits somewhere in the middle. And there is some degree of conflict that exists between the Sheriff's Office and Olio about changes that are made, the necessity for changes, disagreements on certain investigations. Uh, we weren't there to referee those particular disagreements, but we think that that is part of a healthy environment at the end of the day, that there can be disagreements and there can be dialogue uh, for ultimate improvement. Uh, with that, that is the end of my presentation. So let me close this out if I can. Thank you. Uh, Chief Park, are you? Was Chief Park going to uh, have yes, a couple he, comments he could first? Allow her some time, of and course. Then we can open up for questions. Yeah. Of course. Welcome. Thank you. I saw your name on here. I was expecting you to come up. I want to make sure that Jared had his opportunity first. And I've had to cave to get the readers, so excuse my. Uh, <laughs> for a second here. So this was a, a old folks really are excellent. At you. Pardon me. The old folks are laughing at you. <laughs> <laughs> I fought it for quite a while. I no longer can. It is what it is. Uh, this has been a really great opportunity for us to kind of reflect inward and look at some of the things that that we can improve on. And um, it's been great to have dialogue back and forth between um, our city manager and Jared and his group as well. So I just wanted to speak to some of the things that we have done with the recommendations made that we can do here in Shoreline specifically. Some of the larger uh, overarching issues that are Sheriff's Office specific, things with Olio obviously. We're going to have a difficult time making a bigger impact, but we still have a voice from Shoreline to be able to, to reach the executive leadership team.
Uh, one thing that I, I did want to mention with the interviews that were conducted, um, Olio was obviously highly involved in, in the process. Um, our executive leadership team for King County Sheriff's Office was not interviewed uh, in this process to be able to give comments. So with regards to uh, the conflict back and forth that was cited, um, that was um, not from the executive leadership team, and I don't think that they had the opportunity to speak on that. So per the undersheriff, I made sure that I would, I would uh, share that. And thank you so much for reaching out with regards to the violent crime uh, statistics and the changes that we had from a few years ago into 2021 uh, 20, uh, and 2022. Um, hopefully I was able to clarify with my response in the email. Do you have, if you have any additional questions on that, I'm happy to answer. Excellent. I um, wanted to speak to some good news. Uh, as Jared mentioned, some things have changed in the process of the final report. And now one of those good things is where our staffing currently is. So we are currently, as of today, Monday, January 29th, at six vacancies out of our 50 commission. That is highly improved from two years ago when I came back to the city. Um, we are doing some really, really good things here that I think is attracting um, and recruiting from uh, cops that we already have in the sheriff's office. In addition, we have a large pool of training officers and um, just have had some excellent, uh, fortunate uh, in having some excellent recruits come through for us. So not everybody makes the program. We were kind of discussing that earlier, um, but we've, had a, we've been able to take those people that are passing through, plug some holes, and with that, take some of those vacancies that we've had in our investigative units and start filling, backfilling those. Uh, my goal, as I've mentioned to you in last year's police services report, is to work on our traffic unit as well and still start bolstering that up as well. Um, more information will come from that for my PSR this year. Um, and just some changes we're going to make to the structure of that with the new parking enforcement team that we're going to have coming on board. It's going to free up our, our cops to do some more dedicated and specific traffic enforcement. So it's exciting news um, that our vacancy rate has dropped. Um, only three of those vacancies are non-active, and with that, that could be anything from an FMLA long-term issue. Um, we have one uh, officer, unfortunately, injured on duty, for instance, that's likely facing a medical retirement. Um, disciplinary, such as administrative leave, and then military leave as well, usually contribute to those. Uh, the vision, mission, and goals were uh, shared in this report, and uh, again, changes have been made just as of last week. Our sheriff, after uh, being in office for two years, has made some adjustments to our vision, mission, and goals for the sheriff's office uh, overarching mission. Um, so I'll be sharing those as well in our new police services report. So this is slightly outdated. Our leadership, integrity, service, and teamwork has always been strong um, for us. None of that has changed with regards to our values. Um, but we have a little bit more robust and, and specific goals that she has in mind that are going to be cited. And again, that just that change just occurred last week. 
I wanted to speak a little bit to the onboarding process that, that we do have here for our new sergeants. Um, after returning here to Shoreline two years ago as, as the ops and admin captain, any new sergeant that we were recruiting, I would have a, a, a long sit-down conversation with them. We wanted the right fit individual for our city to make sure that they were in line with your goals. Um, that's continued. Um, we make sure that we go and recruit the right fit for our city. Um, with that, that's just kind of the initial conversations. The sheriff's office has a new sergeant school that they provide. That could be within a year of somebody promoting. Sometimes it's quite outdated by the time that they get to that 40-hour class. Um, but immediately I've just changed things and done it a little bit different here. Um, we don't just want to give people their stripes and say go out there and, and be a sergeant now. Um, I have paired them up one-on-one, -on -one, similar to what our FTO program is, our field training program, but we do it with our sergeants. So they're completely unplugged, not running a shift on their own, but paired with a um, senior sergeant on patrol working side by side. So starting off as a, a very um, uh, heavy lift for the training sergeant. Within a week, they start passing off more responsibility. So they back off a little bit and are, are watching closely over the sergeant till they get to the point three or four weeks into it where they're essentially running the shift and the training sergeant is simply in the background to answer questions. So that's something um, that's been very successful and gotten a lot of feedback from our new sergeants that are happy with the fact that they had that opportunity and weren't just thrown to the wolves. Additionally, we have the, the um, money available for training so that we can work immediately on their career level certification. Um, some of the uh, intensive schools that were, were named in here, FBI LIDA for instance, um, National Academy and, and so forth, we've been able to get our sergeants into those where unincorporated um, sergeants that have newly promoted may not have that opportunity. We do a one-on-one -on -one meeting with their captain every single week at minimum, one face-to-face. And then we have three, nine, or excuse me, three, six, nine, and 11 month written evaluations as well. So there is a lot of communication uh, and close watch over our new sergeants to make sure that they are confident and they have the tools that they need to go out and be successful in that position. I completely agree. They are the uh, most important role within our rank and structure as far as running a shift and doing the day to day work. So we want to make sure that they are, are properly equipped. Um, with regards to the, the heavy lift and administrative duties that our sergeants have, we could have agreed more. Um, in November, we placed uh, Sergeant Scott Fitchett into an acting administrative sergeant position. So we have pulled him from patrol and taken all of the administrative duties that have been weighing down our patrol sergeants and handed those over to him. Uh, it's been an extremely heavy lift for him, a uh, good experience and probably um, um, keeping him on his career goal and pass, so um, potentially I think he's going to be running, or not running, but rather testing for a captain's position. So kind of preparing him for that, giving him on-the-job training. Um, that lift that has been taken off of our, our sergeants that are working patrol has been significant. So the amount of time that they can now spend out in the field versus tied to their desk, uh, it's been significantly um, um, changed. So good stuff there, and uh, we'll be looking at making that a permanent change eventually. Um, there was mention to uh, implementing an audit function for the body-worn cameras. Um, that is something that the Sheriff's Office has had in place um, through uh, labor negotiations. Every three months, random video is pulled from the body-worn camera footage that we have, and they look for any oddities, any 
allegations of misconduct, anything that needs to be addressed as far as training goes. So that's something that's been done uh, with cooperation of Olio being involved, our internal investigations, the work site, uh, and our labor um, as well. I appreciated the fact that um, it was highlighted on, on page 33. The numbers that are provided here for uh, reviews and certification that are done by Olio, these are King County Sheriff's Office wide. These are not shoreline cases. So the numbers here, if you thought, boy, we've got a heck of a lot of misconduct and allegations that are going on on shoreline, it's simply not the case. Um, but those were the numbers that were available for the study to be conducted. So I appreciate Jared uh, making, making that note as well. Make sure there's no confusion on that. <clears throat> I already spoke to that. Uh, with mention of the complaint forms, um, we do indeed have a QR code that's available at our front desk. Um, so any um, not just complaints that people want to make, but commendations. They can take a quick picture and access that online. We do have written forms that are available, but behind the desk. We do that because uh, historically, when we have had those up in our lobbies, including headquarters downtown, um, they've been uh, vandalized often and kind of misused. So we have those available. Um, you don't just have to use the QR code. Not everybody has a phone. Not everybody wants to do an online form. So they simply have to ask our admin staff and we provide that for them immediately. Um, we want to make sure that we, we stay in line. Any, any allegations of misconduct, we're going to take those and we're going to investigate them thoroughly. Um, I spoke a little bit too in the email response just about the dashboards uh, that we have that have made accessing our crime statistics and information a little bit easier. Um, we are still struggling with our CAD system, and uh, the Sheriff's Office, again, good news to report back, is looking into a more updated system, something that can appropriately collect the data that we want uh, specific to race and, and other issues that we haven't been able to do before. So they've uh, formed a committee, and that's one of the first improvements that they're looking on and uh, conducting with our technology issues. If there's any questions that you have for me, I'm happy to try to answer them. Thank you. I think the questions for both either presenter, Councilmember Sully. Thank, thank you. I've, I've got a bit. Um, first of all, I wanted to put this whole thing into context, sort of where it came from. So when George Floyd was killed, I had to look it up. It was 2020. It was actually four years ago. Um, it was during pandemic, and we had some incidents in Shoreline that raised some real concerns with me and with Councilmember Robertson, and I think everyone who's on council. Um, and so we had some meetings to figure out what had happened. Former leadership, different people, nobody currently here was involved, but I was very concerned with some of the things I was hearing about police response and lack of response to some of those incidents. So we did a three-part process. This is the third part of it. We had a hearing where we heard from existing uh, sheriff's employees and city employees about the oversight processes that, were, that are in place now. We then had a panel with folks from the ACLU and a bunch of other places who were just discussing different ways you can approach 
police oversight and different things we need. And in the ACLU, the top recommendation to counter that is body-worn cameras, and I'll come back to that in a minute. Um, and then we had this, and this was a push to get an outside entity to do a checkup on the sheriff's office and on the Shoreline Police Department, not because we wanted a particular problem fixed, but just because we wanted exactly what we've gotten here. And thank you, Mr. Virgu, and this is exactly what I was hoping for. An overall look at where things are and on where things might be improved. And I'm not surprised at the results, which basically are, we're doing it right. There's some areas we can do it better, but there's nothing so horribly broken that, that we need to you know, abandon everything and restart. I want to focus on a couple things. I'm not going to hit on body-worn cameras because I think everyone's on the same page with that. Let's get that done. <laughs> Let's find city money if we need it. Let's get that done. And we are we are improved in that area uh, already. We have just started the rollout in Shoreline. We just unfortunately were the last contract um, the way that they did the rollout, um, but we've currently now got a dozen. So very quickly things are changing, and uh, everybody's excited to get them. So yeah. we know this is a good thing. It's good for us. It's good for you know the people that we serve. So we're very excited. Yeah. Shoreline tends to whine the least, so we tend to be not at the top <laughs> of the of the sheriff's not office the rollouts. Wheel. But we can change that. Um, <laughs> I wanted to touch very briefly on Olio. That's above our pay grade for the most part. I mean, that's the sheriff's office thing. I have some concerns there based upon you know past life experiences. But my question for you, Mr. Berguon, is my sense is there is nothing so broken there that we as a contract city need to say, we've got to fix this. There are things that could be done better. There are areas of concern, but it's not to a point where we need to worry as a recipient of services that it's something we've got to fix or things are going to go dramatically south in the near future. Is that an accurate assessment? I, I would say that is an accurate assessment. And, and that is the reason we specifically wrote the items in this report is something that the committee may choose to elect or to have further discussion about or be part of those discussions. I think if we were assessing Olio independently uh, and, and, and Olio was looking for our recommendations, we would have focused on them a little bit more and we probably would have had some very specific recommendations for them. But the focus was to provide you a report and something that you may want to engage in further dialogue. All right, th th thank you, that's, that's the answer I was expecting. Um, Last couple things. Um, I, I was so gratified to hear you say that sergeant is the most, you know, the most important uh, rank in the police department. I could not agree more. I mean, and I, and I will tell you, as a as a former paramedic and a former prosecutor, the things that I saw go bad in the field and the things that I prosecuted, generally always always took place without a supervisor there. And I have some concerns about current deployment decisions. And I heard you tonight that that you're making changes, and I appreciate that. I think we. Those are good and we may need more. I did a ride along and I rode with an extraordinary officer. There were three other extraordinary officers. They were self-dispatched. They handled everything on their own and they did it right. But at one point we were in a parking lot in Richmond Beach dealing with a minor fender bender that wasn't a DUI that was reported that way. And all four officers were there and we were there for 45 minutes. And my thought was, had there been a supervisor here, that supervisor might've said, hey folks, I think officer X can handle this. Let's break free and deal with some of the other calls that are piling up, right? right? And more importantly, if behavior was inappropriate, it's asking a lot of officers who rely on other officers for their lives to say, stop this, right? My experience with sergeants is they're paid to do that and they're fine with that. They're fine saying, back off, slow down. During the course of that ride along, I did not hear a supervisor's voice on the radio. I never saw a supervisor. It was not even mentioned during the course of the day. That culture, I think, needs to shift. And we need to get sergeants responding on things, sergeants regularly being a part of responses. 
I'm additionally concerned, and I have a question for you, Mr. Brigham. Shoreline has a, a chief, an administrative uh, captain, and an operations captain. Today, we got word that we lost our operations captain. And the backfill, as far as I understand it, is going to be the sergeant. Does that, does the loss of that admin captain cause any concerns for you, Mr. Brigham? I would say anything that takes away from that daily supervision is concerning. Um, Here's part of the challenge that I see from uh, from not only having worked in this business for I, I wore a uniform for 29 years. I've been doing consulting work. I do advisory work for the United States Department of Justice. We work upon a very old model that talks about the supervisor to officer deputy ratios, seven to one, nine to one. You know, there's different variations, but they all kind of fall into that category. The challenge is, as we are making sergeants more and more busy. They're not out in the field doing the things that we would normally have expected them to do 20, 30, 40 years ago when we established those mechanisms. Industry-wide, we need to take a deeper look at what that deployment schedule looks like. Um, you have to have supervisors in the field. Uh, I'll go a step further. You, you had mentioned uh, that anytime something went wrong, there was never a sergeant there. I'll go a step further to say that the sergeant is the one that is critically in place to set the tone for the shift and for patrol in general. And those things happen at the patrol level and you have to have that leadership there. The challenge that we have in the business, and this is not, uh, I'm not gonna say this specifically about uh, Shoreline because we didn't assess uh, you know, the experience level of all the sergeants. However, the challenge that we see in many organizations is you know, the more senior sergeants that have a great deal of experience tend to have more specialized assignments, tend to have the better schedules. It's the brand new sergeants that get assigned to the lesser desirable schedule, same as the deputies. And so you end up with a, a circumstance where you have sometimes the newest sergeants working with the newest deputies in the middle of the night where there's no other managerial oversight. That is an industry-wide problem that probably needs to change in general. Uh, but anything that takes away from that daily supervision and moving it into the administrative level, whether it's the backfill for the administrative captain or whatever it might be, I would, I would caution against that. Thank you. Thank you, Mayor. Thank you. Uh, Councilmember Robertson. Thank you. Um, Councilmember Scully, I just wanted to thank you for being the driving force behind this report that we're reading tonight. So um, thank you. I learned a lot. I think it was uh, really helpful and a good way to get immersed into a, a system and a department. Um, and I learned some new things. And I wanted to thank you, Chief Park, and anybody and everybody from King County who participated Right, who would, who, you know, I happily, happily participated in this deep dive, um, which Councilmember Scully once again kind of set the stage for, like, what was the, what was the trigger behind it, and what was the, the atmosphere we were in. So I really, I have two questions, and the first is about just, you said we have a voice at King County. I know you've, you've taken a deep look at this report. Um, I assume King County has as well. I don't think we heard that other contract cities have provided something similar. So what do we think realistically? Is this, is this report going to be reviewed and looked at as a constructive tool, a, a gift per se, just to have a, another point of view? I, absolutely it, ha it has been. Uh, the undersheriff has been highly involved in discussions back and forth. Um, I, of course, shared this with all of my peers at the, the major level with King County Sheriff's Office, many of them being contract city chiefs as well. Um, everyone here 
working in Shoreline. Um, this, this truly has been a, a gift to point out some things that we're, we're doing right, some things that we need to do better. Um, so I, I think this really has been just kind of a blessing for us to have the opportunity to, to go through this. Everyone participated willingly. We wanted to be as transparent and open as possible and get as much out of it as, as we could. But some of the changes that are noted have certainly caught the attention of the executive leadership uh, and the recommendations that were made at that higher level, again, above our, our pay grade in the mm -hmm. sheriff's office. That's great. One of the things that we, um, I know when Councilmember Scully and I spoke um, had a, a little dialogue about this. Um, one of the things that came up, again, thinking about the context and the what was happening uh, in the community at the time that this all got triggered, um, was a, a not very clear understanding about how external information is shared with, with not just us, but the community. Mm -hmm. And um, I know that the Office of like Public Information is housed at King County. I don't believe we have one here. Um, within our police department. So that was not something that ended up being addressed in this report. And for me and you know my my world, I still think there's still a gap. So what is the process and are you comfortable with and is our city manager comfortable with when an event rises to the level of great public interest, even media interest, how are we ensuring that the correct information is entering the discourse. We don't need to direct it, control it, you know, anything like that. But I think in the cases that happened in the past where there was some public outcry, it, there was a total absence of voice um, from the department. Um, I think part of that uh, change for the better um, has been that we, we have a couple louder voices here in the city now in the leadership roles. Um, additionally, Captain Meyer, who apologizes, he had to leave. He's covering for special ops this week and got a call out. Um, came from a re media relations position when he came back to Shoreline. Um, he has some significant contacts and connections with the media. So those relationships that are already built, we can have conversations and um, be direct and give as much information as, as we possibly are able to provide. Um, we don't like staying quiet. We want to get the information out there and shared. Uh, we want our story told um, accurately. Doesn't always happen still. And some of the things that slip through, uh, we had a story recently, they went directly to our King County Sheriff's Office MRO rather than coming to us for the information and it was skewed. We ultimately ended up receiving an apology um, from the, the opposite end of that. So the more that we continue to build those partnerships and relationships with, with our media, I think the better. Um, we want our voice heard. And we have been told recently within the past couple of weeks that the Sheriff's Office does support if we have newsworthy information, the voice can come from us first. Mm -hmm. So that is something that's been in question uh, recently. We had a little bit of an issue with it in one of our uh, recent uh, drug busts and uh, executive wanting to take that and, and provide the message when we had the the true story and the full story here. So that's been ironed out and fixed. Um, and we have the full support of the sheriff's office now to make sure that we have the first right of refusal for any information that's going out. Things do slip through though still, it's frustrating. Yeah, that's good to hear. So yeah, thank you. I hope you continue to feel and the entire department feels supported. So if there's anything that was brought to light through this process or anything else that comes up that you will always come to us and see if there's a way that we can help. Thank you. Thank you so much.
Thank you, Deputy Mayor Mark. Thank you, Mayor. It's always a delight to follow Councilmember Robertson because she says thank you so much better than I can. So I too would like to echo her words. I really appreciate the report, really appreciate what Councilmember Scully has done to set the stage and we're all here. And the, the point that she made um, is the one I really wanted to echo, which is how can we help? Um, we spent time going through the various recommendations. They were, I, I'm not sure which ones we as, as Shoreline have much influence in, but they all seem reasonable and to the extent that we can support would really uh, like to do so. So I just wanted to emphasize that uh, as part of it. One of the things that uh, I was curious uh, about was the data collection and biased-based policy issues and, the, and how we got there. In your opinion, is that something that is going to change or is it that's how it is or? No, we're, we're hoping for the change. Any databases we know is as good as the information that goes into it, and we have not had an adequate, uh, we have a very outdated CAD system. So the collection of that data and being able to sift through it is a very difficult task and oftentimes inaccurate. Um, issues, too, with just not, frankly, being able to ask people. Um, so policies being put in place and being able to, to, to um, you know, accurately reflect the information that we can collect is extremely important. Um, but we've been very limited by the systems that we have. It's, I promise you, a frustration throughout the Sheriff's Department. Um, our technology is way behind and something that we, we want to improve. So I'm, I'm grateful that this is the first thing that they're going to try to fix and get a better system in place. Um, it just makes our jobs easier so that we can turn around and, and be more transparent and open about what we actually have. If there's a problem, we have the true numbers right in front of us and we know how to get down uh, into it and, and fix what's going on. So, but currently it's, it's a frustration. Thank you. And then uh, would you comment about the early warning systems and what happens here and the comment that was made by Mr. Bergwan, which is Really appreciate that report. Very professional. Thank you. No, certainly. It's a, the way that our system works is any major event that comes up, it basically starts keeping points. Um, so if you haven't had any major events, such as a, a pursuit or a use of force, something to that effect, a complaint, um, you'll show up in green in the dashboard. Um, and as you have things that happen in close succession, you'll go to yellow and eventually to red. So. Once that happens, our human resources is supposed to flag those things, uh, turn around and bring them to us. We don't need it to get that far. We know our people and we know what's going on. I don't need human resources to, to have to do that deep dive. We pay very close attention here. So as things are coming in, we have great communication. If something comes up, the sergeants know that they need to come to the chain of command, let us know something has happened, and we can start uh, digging into it a little bit deeper. If somebody starts acting out of the ordinary, there's usually something behind it. Um, it's usually something, or oftentimes, something that has absolutely nothing to do with work. It's something that's going on at home. They may be struggling in some area. Um, and we've been able to address a few of those issues specifically over this last year that probably saved some careers, um, certainly saved some potential embarrassment to the department 
um, and we have better people working for us because of it. But we have to pay attention. Thank you. Thank you, Chief Park, and uh, thank you for embracing this. I know that uh, we see, often see across the country, we see tension when these kind of reports are, are being done, and I appreciate the willingness of the, you and the King County Sheriffs to be engaged in this process and willing to learn from this process. So I, I really want to thank, thank and you. appreciative of that. And I really say that we have had a great partnership over with the King County Sheriffs. And I think that this report says that we may have made the right decision in contracting. That first council who made that decision has made a really great decision to contract with King County Sheriffs. And I think it's a very good thing that we're doing so. I look to some of our neighbors who have their own uh, police departments and I see struggles, <laughs> lots of struggles. and. I feel that we are very blessed and have it much easier than some of our neighbors <laughs> and either in the state or across the country who have to deal with uh, small police departments or not having the resources or capacity to deal with issues or just the struggle to that every police department is facing in, in trying to get good officers to come and, and serve. And so I think <coughs> In terms of that base, that first decision to contract was a very good decision by our, the previous councils. I appreciate that. Thank you. My question um, is uh, to Mr. Berguan. When we think about sort of, I'm glad you touched on the role of contract cities and the difference between that in your report uh, or in your written in your oral comments, um, which wasn't quite addressed in the report, but. Are there things when we look to sort of have our next negotiation, next round of contract negotiations with King County, are there things and best practices from other contract cities and other contract communities that we should incorporate and sort of bring to the table as we're talking about that next contract? Uh, you mentioned uh, in the report sort of one of the recommendations or potential recommendations is a, more, a greater say in who the officers are who might be stationed in Shoreline. But I, I'm wondering if there's any other recommendations that we should be thinking about as we are in that next round of contract negotiations. Maybe best practice. Sure. So, I, yeah, I, I, I will say that, you know, in the work that we do, nor normally we present or we will do assessments on individual police departments. I have had in the course of the work that I've done several sheriff's departments that I've worked with. And of course, I've got professional experience working with sheriff's departments. I will say that there is no one way to structure a contract. Uh, every contract I've ever seen, how it is billed, how costs are captured, uh, whether you're paying uh, you know, a portion of the liability costs, a portion of the administrative costs, all of those are different. Uh, I will say that there are a couple of things that I find uh, uh, that have been somewhat interesting in some contracts that I've seen. Uh, what is unique about yours is that you can choose your police chief. Uh, I have seen that done in some places, but in many cases I have not seen that done. One other area that I've seen, uh, and this is just something that you may want to consider, uh, the observation that we made in Shoreline, and I, uh, I don't know if Chief Park has the exact numbers, but we were provided with the overall vacancies of the Sheriff's Department and the overall vacancies of the Shoreline Police Department over what was ultimately contracted for versus what was actually there. And the percentage was, was very similar. I don't remember the exact numbers, it's in the report. 
Uh, but I have seen some entities, I have seen some jurisdictions, I have seen some sheriff's department contracts that says, if we're gonna contract for 50 deputies, we're gonna get 50 deputies and the sheriff's department is gonna absorb these shortages elsewhere or they're gonna cover them on overtime in the jail or something of that nature. Uh, you may want to look at something like that. Uh, again, I'm not here to give you advice on that. I'm just saying that is something that I have seen in some places. Uh, and then, of course, you know, uh, uh, it's always nice to have a voice in who is representing your community. And although the sheriff's permits are typically fairly autonomous and they are bound by their own rules and their labor rules about where people are assigned and whether they have those assignments based on seniority, uh, you know, there are those occasions where an individual person uh, becomes a lightning rod for controversy within a community because of something he or she may have been involved in. Uh, and quite often it is nice to have that capacity to say, hey, let's make sure that that person isn't assigned here for the time being, reassign them elsewhere. That may actually happen in actuality. Uh, and when I discussed this with Chief Park, she said that the, the Sheriff's Department will always work with the city to ensure that those people are not necessarily present but at the end of the day, there's not necessarily a, a, a voice that is established through the contract that, that provides that for you. Thank you. And th again, thank you for the report. Any further discussion? Yeah, Councilmember Ranso. Uh, thank you, Mayor. I was really impressed with the uh, report. A um, uh, couple of, and my, the, my fellow council members have, have already asked a lot of the questions I was going to uh, ask anyway, but a couple of things that came up that I was wondering about. Um, one thing that was brought up was that there is a um, that there's no official mechanism for the city to request that it, that the employee be transferred elsewhere and replaced by another KCO employee if there was a uh, if there were a lot of citizen, citizen complaints. And I'm kind of wondering is that has that been has that occurred in the in the Shoreline's police force and where there have been uh, one particular officer has had um, uh, complaints and how 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 did you handle that and um, and I'm kind of interested in kind of what in establishing a mechanism, you know, um, and how would we go about doing that? So, thank you. Uh, I, I think through the negotiations, and I'm, I'm supportive of this idea, again, we want best fit for the people that we have serving here in our city. Um, we want to be in line with your goals, um, and sometimes there are folks that just frankly aren't a good fit, uh, but we don't have cause per the way the contract is currently written to remove them. So it has been an issue. It doesn't happen often. Um, oftentimes when you, you have that type of individual, there's discipline issues that are um, kind of coupled with what's going on. And eventually we can find a way for them to have a path elsewhere because of those issues when we have sustained complaints. Um, but sometimes it's, it's just a personality and, and belief issue um, of concern but we don't have cause. So I would love a mechanism like that to be put in place. Um, sometimes I, I look at the vacancy rate that we, we have, I look at our numbers, and I don't just want to fill it with a body. We want the right people here. Boy, I would love to have full staff, uh, and I would love to have bodies to fill every single one of those vacancies. But if we have the wrong person and the wrong fit, it can become problematic for all of the progress and work that we have have put into to getting this department on the right track. So um, I would love to have that in place. Currently it doesn't exist and labor really um, seems to be the biggest block in that, not having cause. All right, thank you. Sure. Any further discussion? 
Councilman Sorry, just a couple last things. Um, there has been a problem with that. Um, and, and with your support, let's get that changed because you, you characterized it exactly right. It was a lengthy disciplinary history with nothing really sustained or what was sustained minor, but it just was an officer who caused a lot of community unhappiness. Um, I'd like to get that done. And finally, sorry for the dig, but Captain Meyer should not be stepping out for another assignment in the sheriff's office, right? I mean, we're, no. we're paying his salary. No, so. I, I'm, I, in case you haven't been able to tell by my face, I'm not happy with losing Captain Lockhart, um, yeah. who just fit right in. And I just couldn't talk about any different personalities between the two of, of my captains. And boy, it's worked out beautifully. So I know this is good for the overarching sheriff's office as a whole, but it's quite frustrating. Um, I'm holding on tight to, to Captain Meyer. Um, but uh, yes, it's they don't think they haven't tried coming for him. <laughs> and that's what you, you have happen when you have talented people yeah. uh, that speaks highly of, of the both of them and, and what they bring to this department. But I'm holding on for dear life right now. Thank you. Mayor, Thank if you. I could just yeah. bring up one point of clarification. We currently have an evergreen contract with King County Sheriff's Office, so there's no expiration date. So. Um, unless we do something to initiate conversations of renegotiating um, the agreement, it is ongoing. Thank you. Okay, thank you very much. Thank you. This brings us to study item 9B, a study session on the distributed city maintenance facility plan. Lance Newkirk and Trisha Yonke are online to present the staff report. Welcome. Yes, good evening, Council um, and Mayor and Council. Um, I recognize time has uh, been impinged a little bit, but we will certainly give this uh, topic uh, ample time, And but I will be mindful of the time that is remaining uh, in the evening. Thank you. So moving forward. I just would like to start with a quick overview of the agenda that we'll cover tonight. There will be a little bit of background material that I think provides context of the uh, challenges that we um, have with the plan and where we've been to date. Then we'll uh, discuss a little bit of the challenges that we are found with the current plan, provide recommendations, propose next steps, and then address some uh, questions. And as I am the uh, presenter tonight, Trish uh, Yonke, as the Public Works Director, will be in the background for questions I can't um, address or if she feels the need to provide some additional commentary. So with that said, we'll jump into the background and work through this uh, pretty quickly. So the city uh, maintenance facility needs have been ongoing and growing over the, over the years. The first real effort to get a fully functional city facility for maintenance was started in 2013 when the city acquired the Brugger's Bog property, which was the former King County road shed property. And between 2013 and 16, our architects were hired consultant and initial plan developed for the North Maintenance Facility. And unfortunately, when that plan was presented to City Council, we had learned that there were more challenges and cost than were anticipated with the initial look at developing the property. So staff was directed to take a look at alternative sites within the city to develop a single maintenance facility. So that work was underway from 2017 
And we came back and presented to council at that time. And it was discovered that there really wasn't one property that could serve uh, as a sole uh, location for a citywide uh, maintenance facility. So staff was directed to look at properties that the city did own. And uh, the three properties were uh, that were primarily focused was Ballinger, North Maintenance, and the Hamlin Park property. And so when staff looked at those and alternative sites other than those three, uh, we came back and reported on what we found and the answer was yes, it looked like we could uh, maybe spread out some of the maintenance needs on a distributive maintenance facility plan and council gave direction to proceed on that path uh, going forward. So fast forward to 2020-21, uh, the grounds maintenance crew needed a new home that had, had been formed in 2019, the crew, and was providing in-house maintenance. So there were some interim improvements made at the North Maintenance Facility, as well as starting the design on a Ballinger Maintenance Facility. Fast forward 2022, those bid documents were completed and uh, went out to bid, and that has started construction in 2023. Additionally, in 2023, the schematic designs for the other two properties, North Maintenance and uh, Hamlin, were completed, which is bringing us, part of the reason we're here tonight is to discuss those plans. But before we move into that, is just providing a quick update on the project progress for the Ballinger Maintenance uh, construction. So to provide context for, for council, this is a relatively small site. It is just about a little over a half an acre and what uh, this building here on the southern part of the property will house is we have a decant facility that will house and process street sweeping waste as well as vector waste. And then we have a salt storage bin here. Uh, the decant facility is currently being performed at the North Maintenance. Salt storage is currently at the Hamlin property. And then not depicted here, we do have a future uh, winter operations that enhancement where we have a salt brine maker that will allow us to make liquid de-icer and then there will be a series of three 5,000 gallon storage tanks to house that product for our winter operations. Uh, new fueling facility is being added and this is uh, will allow us to decommission the one that is currently out at the north maintenance facility. A new vehicle wash bay is on the property we also have a mechanical room just to support the uh, mechanical, electrical, and utility needs on the site. A little bit of a storage prop uh, room for small winter uh, equipment like uh, supplies like tire chains, um, snowblow blades, and some other smaller equipment. And then a space for staff that are working on the site to take a, a, either a lunch break or a rest break or use the bathroom facility. And then these two pictures just show the decant facility under construction and then the fueling system that is under construction there currently. We hope to have this completed and start commissioning in the second quarter of, of this year. So the Hamlin site, which the schematic is completed, and this, this is a depiction, just a flat depiction of the, um, what has been proposed for the site. To orient council on the site, the dotted lines represent existing structures that are on the site, and then the diagonal lines are proposed buildings and structures uh, for the, the maintenance pro uh, project. 
it is worth noting that to the north end, our property line and our existing footprint is approximately here, and we have had to encroach onto the property of the park property of a little over a tenth of an acre, and that has some impacts that I'll discuss in, in a moment. But do keep in mind, this is a very narrow, narrow site with limited options for moving buildings around. One of the biggest impacts that we found and discovered from our pre-design estimates, where we had anticipated 45 trees being impacted, that has nearly doubled between 59 and 104, depending on the actual construction and what can be done when we, uh, if the site is developed further. So that's a significant change, but again, uh, the narrowness and, and of the site and just the ability to house everything that we need to uh, for a maintenance facility has made this challenging not to have this type of impact on, on trees. Additionally, because of the three sites and their unique shapes, they're irregular, they're small, it has pr provided some constraints. The earlier graphic I shared of the final design had removed from the preliminary design a storage building that we had tried to fit on the site, but it just wasn't physically possible and make the other operations uh, function safely. So this was for uh, the larger snow, snow plow blades, the spreader boxes, and other snow fighting gear. And so we've had to propose moving this to the north maintenance facility in this general area. And so that was one of the impacts of having a smaller constrained sites. Additionally, because of this, this has impacted the 25th Avenue flood reduction projects by requiring a little bit of the shrinkage of the floodplain storage that was anticipated for the project. And you'll see what that looks like in an upcoming slide. But do note, we, do, we are on a pause with the, the flood reduction project, so there would be opportunity and there is opportunity to make alternative arrangements for the project if this is not a uh, viable option long-term, but at this point, it is uh, still viable given the proposed uh, recommendations we'll, we'll talk about tonight. So just to reiterate, with the, the challenges of the current plan, there are sites constraints, the small irregular shaped properties and the inability to move different buildings around because of other projects that may happen on one of the other sites that impact or lessen our ability to move buildings from one site to another. But a, a, a huge impact is the funding gap. Where we're at currently, we're able to get through complete phase one, which is a schematic design but the shortfall in funding that we have in particular is approximately 50 million and with 45 million of that being in the general fund and then approximately 5 million within the two utility funds combined. So that is a challenge today and of course as you know that that challenge will continue to increase funding as we go forward. So orient a little bit more on the North Maintenance Facility. This is a depiction of how the site is functioning today. And as I mentioned earlier, this is part of the fueling system that is going to be removed. This is the fuel uh, pumps. These are the fuel tanks. And then this is the existing decant uh, building that is there. By removing these operations, it does allow us to free up some space on the site 
for additional, additional uh, improvements. Now, the Hamlin site that I talked about earlier and the schematic design, this is the final schematic design that is proposed for the North Maintenance Facility. And you'll see that the other slide where I showed the equipment moving from Ballinger to the North Maintenance Facility has been incorporated into this design. And you'll see the buffer that has been created bef between the flood uh, reduction area and that floodplain. Again, it has shrunk, but as mentioned earlier, that is something that can be adjusted and worked with in the overall plan as it, as it moves forward. And it is worth noting that there is no permanent staff on this site that would be located there with restroom facilities, office spaces, or anything like this. This is just primarily bulk storage and bulk material storage like gravel and, and other materials, and then equipment storage for the vehicles. So a proposed interim plan that we've been uh, kicking around the department was what could we do if we stood down on the current uh, distributed facility plan? And one of those is looking at adding an interim modular office similar to the one that exists today for the grounds crew, but allow it to be there for a period of time that would allow staff and our architectural consultants to try to honor the intent of the schematic where we have bulk storage and equipment storage, but it may look a little different than the earlier version, but that is something that we would uh, recommend and you'll see in a moment for some reconciliation of these ideas versus the existing schematic plan. So moving into the recommendations, uh, staff's recommendation for council tonight is to not proceed with the current plan because of some of the limitations and constraints I've mentioned. Uh, and then to do utilize, though, funding that has been collected to date to move forward with some interim improvements on the north maintenance plan and then continue the financial practice of setting aside a million dollars a year for additional ma uh, maintenance facility improvements. And then finally, work together and collaborate uh, with council to develop a financial strategy that will fund future uh, maintenance facility uh, needs. Because there are current needs, and as we are a growing city, there will be future needs as well. So proposed next steps, just to uh, reiterate and go through this fairly quickly, is the money that has been collected to date is available to make some interim improvements. That allows us to address some of the current deficiencies that the existing streets maintenance crew um, have with the site they're using at Hamlin today. It would also allow us to construct some improvements that would be sized for manned staff or for a 10-year period. And we're hopeful that we would also look to have permanent uh, structures integrated with the reconciled plan. And then again, just to develop the long-term financial strategy to fund all facility needs going forward. So a uh, final step with the recommendation would be to engage architects to modify the existing plans to do that reconciliation I talked about to accommodate additional staffing present on the property and then to address other normal uh, site development costs like frontage improvements, stormwater on site, utilities, et cetera, et cetera, as well as developing cost estimates for the site improvements, and then check back in with city council for direction. And at that, that is the presentation.
And if there are council questions, we're here to answer them. Thank you. Councilman Rademacher. Thank you, um, Mr. Newkirk. Um, could you put the slide up on the um, pivoting to the north uh, maintenance facility, the proposed with the modular? Yep. This one. Yeah, that one. Okay. Um, just kind of questions and observations here. Um, I do support the interim pivot from Hamlin due to the potential 104 trees being cut and what appeared to me to be a very Cadillac version of a permanent building. Um, I was wondering, pivoting to the north maintenance facility to a modular tenure seems we have the two extremes and I'm wondering if there can't be a middle ground that we can look at maybe getting one-time grants since this is a build of any state or federal one-time grants uh, and then doing a very simplified permanent build at the north maintenance facility i i did a couple of quick checks on some steel buildings where they they're not off the shelf, but if you tell them what you need, they're they're much more simpler than the Hamlin Park build, uh, what that looked like. Um, I'm just wondering if there can be a middle ground here where we're not spending a lot of money on a temporary modular. I would prefer to see maybe if there are is a middle ground option, a more permanent, simple building that could maybe have solar panels. Um, on it. So I, I was just wondering about those options. Thank you. Yes, thank you, Council Member. I think that's an excellent question. Um, to the first point about potential grants or other, other funding opportunities, unfortunately, as we've explored this over the years, there's very limited opportunities to uh, have funding for these type of facilities. Uh, you know, we can certainly uh, explore that as an option and continuing to do so going forward, uh, but there are limited opportunities for those type of grants for, for this type of construction project. Uh, to your point about maybe a middle ground and a steel building structure, I am familiar with those type of structures and in other uh, municipalities I've worked, it has been an option that's been explored. Uh, if, if that is something that council would like us to explore further, uh, I think we could do so with the architect's help to look at what that could look like on the property. Um, one of the things we've been very mindful of to date is trying to honor all the work that we've done in the past and try to integrate any of these interim improvements uh, to respect uh, that, that previous work. But to answer your question directly, we could ask our, our architects to look at that as an option rather than uh, just purely uh, modular office building that's more um, interim, or we could make that one of those options that we explore the either or. Yeah, I'd be interested in other council uh, opinions on that. Thank you. Councilmember Scully. I'm actually good, thank you. Okay. Deputy Mayor Mark. 
Uh, Mr. Newkirk, on the picture that is up, it shows a stream buffer. Could you comment about that? Yes, this this is one of the areas that uh, the development of the site that we'll have to be uh, mindful of because there are setback requirements where the stream buffer is. And because the interim modular office and the other one there is an interim building, it, it, it can reside because it's not a permanent structure within the existing stream buffer. But any permanent structure would have to be outside of that buffer, which is to the south. Does that answer your question, Councilmember uh, Mark? Yeah, yes, sir. I, I appreciate that. And uh, like Councilmember Adamasu, I am interested in seeing what possibilities there might be for having a permanent solution rather than uh, an interim solution. That being said, I can appreciate with uh, that restriction that it is significant for a permanent structure and it may, uh, it may be unfeasible, but, but I think it's worthy of asking a question. Thank you. Councilmember Robertson. Thank you, Mayor. Um, thank you for including in the report the reminder that the, uh, the actions that we're taking here would, would further delay the 25th Avenue Bellinger Creek Habitat Restoration Project, which is something that I'm, I would really like to see happen at some day in the future. So my first question in the future, first question is whether, like how, oof, By putting these in, are we, how, how badly are we pushing out or impacting the possibility of doing that daylighting at some point? Does that make sense? Yes, I, I think it does. I think I'll answer the question this way and I, I hope it gets to your, your concern, council member, is that uh, the floodplain issue is this project has um, been evolving and it's been evolving from a pure um, flood management issue to some habitat restoration. Mm -hmm. And that is some of the, the challenges that we're wrestling with currently of how to integrate uh, that desire of some of the parties that we're working with, which include Lake Forest Park, which include the Corps of Engineer, uh, the tribes and, and other jurisdictions with the project. So it's been, been challenging, uh, but we are mindful that a flood reduction project trying to honor the floodplain is is one of those things that we would want to do if we can and there are other options that if we can't use this site as it's been envisioned there are um, options where we could and this may not be as desirable but there could be an open channel three-sided channel that would take it completely off the property and pick up the um, water from the creek here and just carry that similar to an upside down box culvert that WashDOT is doing for a lot of the stream crossings. It would be that type of a concept. I think I attended when Representative Jayapal was in town, I think we did a little walkabout in this area. So I know there's interest beyond just shoreline. I know there are a lot of parties involved, but um, I think that's one of my concerns about moving forward with with this plan 
And also, and I, I asked this question over the weekend and the answer came in um, late today, but when I look at adding just office space, straight up office space, and I think about the possibility that there might be new office space coming available closer to City Hall, I mean, I know that's not ideal. That's a commute across town, and this, and we have very large vehicles to try to locate. I just wonder if uh, pausing uh, to consider other office space for the just that is already existing office space is an option for us. I, I will say, Council Member, that it is always an option. But but I would be reticent if I if I didn't point out that we have been at this project for going over 10 years now and the same deficiencies that started the project at the hamlin maintenance facility have only been exacerbated as we've added new staff and we've added new crews and the city continues to grow in its maintenance responsibility there is a current need uh, for something like this up at north maintenance whether it's a modular office or a interim solution as you suggested earlier that in between solution um, I was. Uh, I would certainly have to look at the proposed office space, but if it's going to continue out for a couple years or longer uh, for negotiations, that doesn't address the current needs that we have for our staff. Got it. Um, thank you. City manager, provide um, some information on the scenario of potentially utilizing an office space. We are actually looking at the rents from the office space to actually um, make that project pencil. So if we start taking space out and it's not um, rented, it impacts the bottom line. Uh, we have three challenging sites where they're uniquely shaped, they're not very big, and there's issues on each site that we're trying to address. And so fitting that 20 pounds of potatoes in a 10 pound sack, um, I say a permanent facility definitely takes away from the ability to have the restoration, which is why we looked at a modular so that over time we can have an opportunity to look at a master plan in other locations where we can expand our facilities and do the restoration. Permanent facilities make that more difficult. Um, we will look at all of those avenues, um, but there are concerns with each scenario we pick. All fair points. Thank you both. Councilmember Hopi. Thank you, Mayor. Sounds like, and thank you for the uh, thorough presentation and all the designs. And thinking through getting grants or any other source of funding for this project is very hard. And so I'm just curious if you look at your proposed next steps. You have already programmed 7.7 .7 million. I'm just curious what goes into infrastructure. Is, it, is everything going into infrastructure or um, that includes a little bit of ops. Uh, council member, uh, Obi, this would be the infrastructure development. The uh, sidewalk and frontage improvements alone are approaching $2 million across the north maintenance facility. Uh, you know, a potential interim office space and crew quarters that could approach a uh, million dollars depending on the additional site development cost for that we would have to improve stormwater uh, controls on the site and as, as well as electrical uh, upgrades probably additional transformers 
for the property to house the additional um, usage on the site, lighting and security. So the majority of that would be um, all used for actually building structures and developing the site. And uh, some structures could be for the covered storage for the bulk material or for vehicle, uh, covered vehicle and equipment storage. Thank you for that. Thank you, Mayor. Thank you. Um, I do have a couple of questions. And I, I know that several of us on the dais have been working on this for a long time. And there is, the first thing that I remember we talked about is the fact, and you brought this up today, is that there just is not enough space. That we didn't have enough space in 2012 we did not have do not have enough space today. Our maintenance workers and facility and other people working are spread out across four different locations right now, and there's a whole lot of operational issues that go along with having your staff spread out across the city. So and I and I we've worked hard as a city as a council on this, and it's frustrating to sort of get to your point and like oh we this is not working out, and I see Councilmember Scully nodding his head and so I will take that as yes we <laughs> my feelings are not uh, alone here. My question, though, is at what point do we sort of step back and take a, a broader outside look um, at what we need, how we and how we get to where we what we need? And we have, as been said, I think about four times today, we have three we have challenging small locations across the city that do not and may not collectively meet the needs of our community, the needs of our organization as a city. So when do we step back uh, or is it, when do we step back and sort of sort of reevaluate what we have and try to decide if what we have is sufficient to actually do what we need to do? Or are we going to always sort of be in a moment where well, this doesn't quite work, or the funding's not quite there, and these properties just aren't right. And we, and to even potentially even future-proof ourselves, um, as the city is getting, I mean, we're approaching sixty thousand people as population. I mean, so which means more, and we have been purchasing, rightfully, more parks. And so there's more need there. So when do we, I mean, is there a place that we are in, has staff considered sort of stepping back and sort of taking a, looking at this with fresh eyes and saying, if we were to start over, what would we, start from scratch, from scratch, what would we do? Where would we look to find a location that would meet our needs? Mayor, that is an excellent question. And as I'm thinking about it, as you've been framing your question, I, I will will share that staff has covered a lot of this territory with some past uh, presentations and, and past examinations. 
When we looked at uh, the 2016-17 look, we did identify what would it look like to create the ideal site and actually secure a city block that was five to six acre in size and then uh, start buying properties to build a site that would meet our needs. At that time, the cost to do that was about $17 million to buy the property that would be sufficient to house a single maintenance facility. I recently looked at re-examined that question uh, this year or late last year and just an assessed valuation of a similar consideration was it's gone up to $20 million to do that sort of look. Um, we have examined in the past park properties that may have uh, served for this purpose. James Keogh Park was one of those properties that were examined. Um, it was rejected and you know, with the parks bond initiative and that property being under development, that is now off the table. Um, so I really think um, if I can offer a thought is if we develop the financial strategy first and commit to that, we can figure out what we want to do, whether it's buying property, expanding, uh, developing the smaller sites fully, or maybe engaging with a, another property owner like the, the school district to see if there's something where we could uh, jointly construct a facility that has mutual benefit. I will say with Shoreline being built out uh, community, those options are challenging, but they are something that could be explored. So I, I think if we commit to a financial strategy first, then the other pieces could fall into place. But that, that does require a commitment from staff and council uh, to, to, to look at that, which we are certainly willing to do. I appreciate that. And I think that's a very thoughtful and good answer and illuminating answer. The reason I have hesitancy with this current what's being proposed today is I just came back from Olympia a couple weeks ago and they are in the midst of their capital reconstruction project and one of the first buildings they took down was a temporary building that was built somewhere around 40, 50 years ago. So I have to be a little bit skeptical of a temporary building right on a stream. <laughs> Granted, there's other stuff right there now, but a temporary building without a plan or a timeline for when this might, we might actually be able to achieve what we need to achieve. So. I don't know, I've looked to the city manager to ask sort of what he's looking for from, from us today. Uh, but I do, want, I do like what you just said, uh, Mr. Newkirk, and that last comment is, can, have we, to what degree have we reached out to some of our partners, whether it's a community college, whether it's the school district, to see if there is some opportunity for, or the, uh, our utilities, other utilities, are there opportunities to go in for a survey of the joint project or uh, I think I've shared in the past, I mean, are there, what opportunities are there to share space? Um, I'm looking at, I know that at all, I don't want to speak 
I do not want to speak for the school district or even sort of suggest that, but I know the school district had uh, just had at the Aldercrest camp, uh, the old Kellogg site, um, they had Sound Transit st store some of their material there. And so I'm wondering if there is, when we think about sort of options, what is possible? Could there be opportunities to lease some of the uh, these parcels instead of doing something temporary, a temporary band-aids on some, one of our parcels, and then maybe lease or do something at another site in the interim while we're trying to fig while we're finalizing our fund our financing plan for the for everything else. So I I'll turn to Councilmember Scully and, and then. Thank, thank you, and I was going to speak earlier, and then I didn't, and you actually said everything I was going to say, because I wasn't, I mean, as I was listening to you, that's where I'm at, too. Um, you know, we've been dealing with this for, you know, since I've been on council, and the initial proposal was for a 50 or $60 million building at North Maintenance, and I was opposed to that at the time, because it looked like a Taj Mahal. Um, that turned out not to be practical, both for fine funding and environmental reasons, so then we were going to do Hamlin and build that bigger. And my sense is we've exhausted this. I mean, there's not gonna be a way to get this done right distributed. So I'm at the point of saying, I think we do need to do what we have to do very short term to keep things going. But we're gonna, this is gonna be a giant capital project. I just don't, I haven't heard anything over the years that indicates anything other than we're gonna be operating on stopgap measures for the foreseeable future. Um, I would love it if there's partners. I don't, we haven't had a lot of luck with that over the years, but maybe. I know the district is very open to leases. They're not as excited about sales because the revenue goes into a different pot and they can't fund operations. But th that is a possibility. But I am certainly prepared to listen with open ears to big dollar items now where I wasn't five or 10 years ago because I don't think there's any other choice. I, mean, I, think, I think this unfortunately is gonna be our onus in the next council and the council after that's onus to get this thing done. And it's not a sexy thing, it's a maintenance facility, but. That's the thing we're missing, and I think it may be time to do exactly what the mayor suggested and zoom out and come up with a plan. Deputy Member Mayor Robertson, did I see your hand go up? Just a lot of nodding. Okay. Any further discussion? Councilmember Ademasu. I I want to thank Councilmember Robertson for bringing up these good points. Uh, I'm changing my position based on what you said and city manager i would prefer the money be used for for the stream and that situation rather than a permanent solution um at the north maintenance facility um so i more concur now with councilmember roberts and scully um let's look at a very temporary solution that's environmentally friendly and and look at the money first, as as Mr. Newkirk mentioned. Um, so, anyway, I'll I'll withdraw my previous uh, opinion. Thank you. This is why these are study sessions. Deputy yes. Mayor Mark. Uh, I think the main point that you were making, though, Councilmember, was that temporary is not always a good solution. And I too am grateful for knowing more about the creek that we saw in there. I hadn't realized there was a daylighting possibility. But permanent is better than uh, temporary, except when you're stuck. And I've, 
really respect, uh, Mayor, what you had to say and, and what you had to say, Councilmember Scully. I think the other thing that uh, has not been spoken is as part of this assessment of uh, how to finally put this to bed in the, the best fashion, which I think is a great idea, that there is also consideration of uh, are all the activities that are being done due to activities that we must continue? And just throw that out as a question. Thank you. Thank you. Any further discussion? I'll turn to the city manager to. <laughs> I, this is why you. <laughs> <laughs> we, we turn to trust you. Received a lot of good feedback from council. This gives us an opportunity to reconvene as staff and kind of look at kind of what are some of the next steps, given all the constraints that do exist, um, and what opportunities there are to partner. I know some agencies may have concerns with that, um, but there could be others that might welcome it. So we can definitely look at what options are out there, um, and again, what could be temporary on um, certain lands that aren't ours. Um, and I would concur with Lance that we would want to continue with a financial plan. Um, and it may come to um, going to the voters, but um, that's something we'll have to go back and reevaluate and come back to with recommendations. I'll look to the council, but I think it may be helpful I know that several years ago there was the discussion of what the needs of the maintenance uh, staff are in turn and also the uh, how many buildings and how many storage uh, how many feet of storage need to be um, need we need uh, or are projected to be need, uh, needed it maybe if that could be resent to council and shared to council so that we all have or come have a sort of okay this is how much we need to build how much we need to uh, plan for I think that may be helpful especially to some of our new council members who may not have been engaged in that effort yeah deputy mayor uh, absolutely that would be very helpful and the other thing I would ask staff is is that uh, technology is changing on so many different fronts and is that analysis that was done before, is there any modifications that could be made? Thank you. Okay. This is our challenge. And we thought that this year's comprehensive plan was going to be tough. <laughs> okay. Well, we will definitely hear more, continue to hear more about the maintenance needs of the city uh, over the next year and beyond, very likely. With that, I will declare this meeting adjourned. <laughs>